Good morning. Um, have you ever done anything, uh, did something for, you did the right thing, but did it for the wrong reason? Uh, I remember when I was in middle school, I would go to church and youth group, and I had a friend who would carry a Bible that was kind of like this Bible here. It had this uh, gold trim on the edges of it. And I would see him carry his Bible, and he would usually have uh, a sheet of paper from the sermon or uh, a bulletin in there. And I saw him carrying that nice Bible, and I thought, for some reason, that is really cool. That person must be really spiritual. And so I became obsessed with these Bibles. They had to have the gold trim around them. And we had a a bookstore at the church that I went to, a little bookstore. And every week I would go and look at different Bibles. And then I started collecting them. And then each week I would proudly carry my thin line Bible. And some of them I would get were so small I couldn't even hardly read them. But I thought it was the coolest thing to carry around a Bible like that. And of course, people from the outside probably looked at it and thought, oh, he's a middle school student. He cares about God's word. He's bringing God's word to church. But I just wanted to be cool. I just wanted to fit in. I thought I was spiritual if I was carrying around the Bible with the gold trim around it. Now, the passage that we're looking at today is rather interesting. Um, the people, the sons of Samuel, it says in the text, that they didn't follow the ways of the Lord, that they uh, took bribes, they went after unjust gain, kind of like the sons of Eli did a few chapters earlier, but it's a little bit different in that Samuel, it, there's nothing negative that's said about Samuel. But his sons are not following after the Lord, and then the people of Israel come to Samuel and say, give us a king. And of course, that wasn't the real reason. It wasn't really because of the sons, and we'll talk about the reasons why they asked for a king uh, in just a second. But they go and they ask for a king. And this, of course, it says in the text that Samuel was greatly displeased by this. He's greatly saddened that they had asked for a king. And then the Lord says to him, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected God. And so in this text, it should, it, this request for kingship is shown in a very negative light. The fact that they're asking for a king is seen as being a very bad thing. However, we see throughout the scripture that through the line of David would come the one and true king, Jesus. And so in the mind of God, there had to be some intention that there would be a king who would be coming. We see also in the book of Deuteronomy that the author, Moses, at least explains for and accounts for the fact that there will be one day a king. Deuteronomy chapter 17 says this, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So we see this negative uh, association of asking for a king in this text, but then in Deuteronomy we see that it's okay to ask for a king, and we see that kingship is in God's plan. So how do these two things go together? And I think the way that they go together is it's the motivation. It's not wrong for them to ask for a king. It's why they're asking for a king. They're asking for the wrong reasons. And we'll talk in just a second why, what those reasons are. 
We see a dramatic change from chapter 7 to chapter 8. Last week we looked at chapter 7. If you weren't here, I'll just recap it a little bit. Uh, we saw the renewal of the people of Israel. We saw how they were coming back to the Lord, how they mourned the, the loss of the presence of the Lord. They repented of their sins. They believed in the Lord, and then they watched God work on their behalf. It says in the text that God thundered from heaven, defeated their enemies, defeated the Philistines. And we see this great picture of renewal. And then after that, we see that Samuel sets up this stone. He calls it Ebenezer, which means stone of help. And he says, till now the Lord has helped us. And so we see this great picture of renewal, and it seems like Israel is on the back, back on the right track, following after the Lord, and God is working on their behalf. And then chapter 8 is a completely different story. It goes the complete opposite way. They say, give us a king to judge us, to rule us, to go out before us, to fight for us. Now we know that there's been a number of years that have passed since chapter 7, from chapter 7 to chapter 8, because it says in the text that Samuel is now an old man. But there's a dramatic contrast, a dramatic irony between chapter 7, where they're following after God, where God is their king, and now in chapter 8, where they're like, give us a king. We see throughout Israel's history that God was set up to be their king. Deuteronomy chapter 33 again says this, He, Moses, said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Sarah upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the tens of thousands, ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, steps receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession... For the assembly of Jacob, thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. So God led the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he became their king. He went before them, and he led them in battle. And we see how he defeated the enemies before them in the conquest narrative in the book of Joshua. Then we see in the book of Judges that as uh, the judges, when they led the people back to the Lord, that God fought for Israel. And so we see that God is their king, and in chapter 7 we see God working as their king, and this king is undefeated and unstoppable, and yet here in chapter 8 they say, give us a king. And why do they do that? Why do they say, give us a king? The text tells us two reasons they ask for a king. The first reason the text tells us they want to be like the other nations. Verse 19, they respond to the warning of the Lord spoken through Samuel by saying, no, there shall be a king over us, that we may be like the other nations. They want to be like the other nations. That desire to be like those around us is something that's a common impulse, a common uh, desire. Uh, there was a study that's done, uh, that was done, it's described by Mark, uh, Martin Lindstrom in his book, Brandwashed. It was conducted by Robert Sildanini. And in this study, they had 200 participants come into this room, and they had them fill out a survey. And the participants thought that the survey was the experiment or the study, but it wasn't, it was just kind of a diversion. And so they were filling out these surveys, and while they were filling out the surveys, they had uh, an assistant come up, and they had a, a big jar of cookies. And they said, would anybody like a jar, like a cookie? And then they said about one-fifth of the people tended to uh, ask for or receive a cookie. So then they changed it a little bit. 
So instead of having a full uh, canister of cookies, they took a bunch of those cookies out to make it look like a lot of them had been eaten. And so then they offered the cookies again, but again, it was about one-fifth of the people who took the cookies. But then they changed it one more time. And this time, they had the researcher behind a desk, and then they had the cookie jar on a, on a desk or table beside him. And then they had this assistant come in, come in the door, go up to the cookie jar, open up the lid, and take out a cookie. Then after that, they asked again, would anyone like a cookie? And they said that almost everybody took a cookie after that. Lindstrom says this, this, this experiment suggests something that advertisers and marketers have been, long been instinctively aware of. Humans want what other humans want. And the more visible other people's demand is, the more we want what they are having. In the cookie jar experiment, people didn't want more cookies when they thought that others might have taken a cookie. But when they actually saw another person take a cookie, their brain said, give me. We all have a tendency to want what other people want. And in this passage, the people of Israel want what the other nations have. They saw the, the other nations had a king, and they're like, we want one of those too. But what's interesting about their desire to be like the other nations is that in this desire, they are kind of subverting the role that God had for Israel, what Israel was meant to be. See, God's calling for Israel was that they would not be like the other nations. God's calling for Israel was that they would be holy, that they would be the nation that God chose to reveal himself to, that God gave the law to, and that through Israel, all the nations of the world would be blessed, that God would confer his glory through Israel. And so Israel was meant to be a holy, distinct, separate nation, different from the other nations around them. Exodus 19, 5 to 6 says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I was watching an episode of Seinfeld this week. And uh, in this episode, uh, Lane and Jerry are flying somewhere, and their flight is canceled. And... They get booked on another plane, but there's only two seats left. One of them is in coach, and one of them is in first class. And uh, Jerry says that he knows, he's experienced what first class is like, so he has to go to first class. And so he goes to first class, and then Elaine goes to coach. And, of course, Elaine has a miserable time. She's in, in the middle seat, and there's this person next to her with all this luggage that's kind of crowding on her. Um, and the flight attendants are really rude and nasty to her, and the other people around her are rude, and she has to go to the bathroom, and then she has to crawl over everybody to get back to the bathroom, and then when she's coming back to her seat, the cart is in her way, the, the meal cart, so she can't get back to her seat. Then finally, when she gets back to her seat, they're all out of meals, and so she has to take a kosher meal, and she's just having a miserable time. And then meanwhile, Jerry's up in first class, and he's sipping wine, they're bringing him gourmet meals, they're saying, is there anything else we can get for you? They're bringing him a big uh, tub of ice cream, anything that he wants, they're, they're getting it for him. And then when it comes time that he's eating everything, uh, they bring him a pillow to rest. And by the way, he was sitting next to a model. So he's just having a great time there, 
and Elaine's back in coach, and then Elaine decides she's going to try to sneak up to first class. And so there was a window seat open, and there's somebody in the aisle seat, and the person in the aisle seat was sleeping, and so she tries to crawl past that person and ends up falling on them, gets to the seat, and then she puts her head down, and she's finally content, and she uh, can rest, and then the flight attendant comes and says, excuse me, you don't belong here. You need to go back to coach. And of course, she pleads with him and says, oh no, please don't send me back there. I'll do anything. It's so nice up here. It's so comfortable up here. I don't want to go back there. Please don't send me back there. And it's comical how they set up these two contrasts. I've never flown first class before, but uh, you can imagine what it would be like to be in first class versus what uh, Elaine was experiencing. And so we can understand why she would want to go up to first class. But it's harder to imagine Jerry experiencing all those good things, wanting to go back to coach. That's hard to understand. And yet that's exactly what Israel is trying to do. They're first-class citizens, so to speak. God chose to reveal himself to Israel. He gave them the law. He chose Israel as his instrument to bless the world. And yet Israel's like, I just want to be like the other nations. I just want to go back to coach. Israel was meant to draw people in. The people would be drawn to the God of Israel. And, and we think about that, and, you know, in, in a sense, it sounds crazy that they would want to do that, but I think sometimes we do the same thing, or at least something similar. We see the people around us who maybe they don't have any thought of God, they're not following after Jesus, and yet everything is going well for them. They have a good job. They're always uh, spending money on these lavish uh, things, going on trips. They have this great family. It seems like everything in their life is going perfectly, and then we know that we have some struggles. Maybe we're struggling to pay the bill. Maybe we're struggling with mental illness. And we see these people experiencing these things, and there's a tendency to think to ourselves, I wish I was just like them. I wish I could have the peace and the security and the possessions that this person has. But when we do that, in essence, what we're doing is we're seeking to go to coach. Because God has given us his Holy Spirit. We have the privilege of having a relationship with God. The Holy Spirit living inside of us. Something that greater than anything uh, that this world has to offer. And so when we long to be like the nations, to be like those around us, we're in essence longing to go back to coach. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. We have incredible blessings as believers in Jesus Christ greater than anything this world has to offer. And often what we do is we compare our interior to other people's exterior. See, we see what's going on on the outside, and it seems like those people who are far from God have it all together. But we're comparing what we know about ourselves. We know our struggles, our doubts, our sins, our fears. We don't know those other people's doubts, sins, fears. 
And we look at the exterior and we think to ourselves, they have it all together, they have it all figured out, but if you'd peel back the layers, we'd probably find that they're just as broken as we are, just as in need of grace as we are. Proverbs 23, 17 to 18 says this, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut out. So that's the first reason that they want to become like the other nation, that they want a king is so that they'll be like the other nations. The second reason that the text gives us why they want a king is that they wanted the security that a king offers. Verse 20 says, And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. See, the other nations had a leader who they could see. They had a king who fought for them. A king who had a sword, who had a shield, who had armor. A king who could be consulted in the midst of battle. A king who they could see going forward. And Israel wanted someone like that. Someone that could encourage them. Someone who could strengthen them in the midst of their battle. And so they wanted a human, fallible king rather than an infallible, perfect, unstoppable God. And so they sought security in a person that they could see rather than the God who is unseen. This God who is unseen is so powerful. And he demonstrated his power again in chapter 7, verse 10. Samuel was offering up the bur- As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And yet the people of Israel reject this kind of ruler from ruling over them, and they seek satisfaction, seek security in a human, fallible king. And again, we think, we read this story, and we think how foolish these Israelites were as we see the contrast between chapter 7 and chapter 8, how God demonstrates his power again and again and how still they want a king. But again, I think we do the same thing. I think sometimes we have this tendency to seek our security in things other than God. Sometimes we might seek our security in a political candidate. And we stake our hope that the world is going to be okay on one particular political candidate. Sometimes we stake our security on our money. And we feel like if we build up a certain amount of cash, then we'll be okay that we'll be able to withstand the storms of life. For some of us, that security is a relationship. And we feel like uh, our spouse is that security for us. Or if we're not married, we're maybe looking for a spouse to give us that kind of security. And we feel like if we have a spouse, then we'll have this sense of peace and security and that person will always be there for us. There's many different things that we can base our security on. For some, maybe it's an addiction. And we, when we're in the midst of that addiction, maybe just for a moment, we feel this sense of security and feel this sense of peace. That we're, when we're in that high, it's like the world is okay. That the world is righted. And yet God warns us in this passage, warns the Israelites and in turn us, that there is always a cost involved in serving an earthly king. Look again at what it says in the text in verse 11. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. 
He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make implements for war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain of your, and your, of your vineyards, give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. In other words, God tells the people, a king is going to take from you. A king is going to take stuff for you. Yes, he's going to be for the nation of Israel. Yes, he'll offer you some kind of protection, but it's going to cost you. And he's not just going to be for Israel. He's also going to be for himself. He's also going to try to build up his treasury, his chariots, his harvest. And so if you anoint a king above you, that king is going to cost you something. He's going to take something from you. And the truth is all earthly kings take something from us. If your king is a political candidate, if you're supporting that political candidate, what are you going to get in the mail? Donate now. You're going to see those ads all over Facebook. You're going to get text messages to donate to that candidate. And maybe that candidate is working for you, but he also wants to take something from you. If it's an addiction, maybe that king is going to take from you your health. Maybe it's going to take from you your money, maybe your family, maybe even your life. If your king is a relationship, sometimes what happens is that, you know, when people are getting married or into a romantic relationship, they expect that the person that they're with is going to provide them this sense of security and peace and heal all of their anxieties and fears. And, and then they get married and they realize that the other person is expecting the same thing of us. And we realize it's not just me who has the fears and insecurities and sins, it's that other person too. And sometimes when those two things come to get come together, both parties can end up more insecure than when they started. Because no human being was meant to be our ultimate security. That security was meant to be placed in God. If your king is your money, Maybe that drive for money will cause you to neglect your family. Maybe it will cause you to be filled with anxiety as you feel like you just have to have just a little bit more, just a little bit more, and you're, it's never enough to feel secure. And it's always changing. It can always, the, the bottom can always fall out. In the ancient world, it was taught that even the gods take things from the people. In the ancient world, there was really not much of an idea that there was a God who was benevolent, who cared for humanity. It was like the gods are doing their own thing. They care about themselves. And if you sacrifice to them or bring them part of your harvest, maybe they'll be kind to you. That was just kind of the conception in the ancient world. Because all, thing, all kings take from us, except for one king, King Jesus. King Jesus doesn't take from us. Now, when I, when I say that, you might think to yourself, well, he does take from us. I mean, I just put some money in the offering plate. 
I mean, he calls us to worship him, to serve him, to live our lives in worship. And so you might think to yourself, he does take from us. But let's not forget, he's given us all things. He doesn't take from us. He gives us all things to enjoy. And yes, he calls us to give some of those things back to him. But he wants us to be so satisfied in him, to have so much joy and security in him that we're like, okay, here's some of my money. Because I'm not relying on my money to give me security. Okay, here's my worship. Here's my time. Anything that you want, God, I know that you've given it to me. And as a joyful response of gratitude, I want to give that back to you. So God doesn't take from us. He gives us all things, and then we return that with gratitude. He's the only king who doesn't take from us. There's a documentary uh, called The King's Story, and it tells the story of the life of Great Britain's King Edward VIII and how he abdicated his throne for the love of a woman. And the details are kind of uh, messy. It wasn't, wasn't really a good relationship, but the story illustrates the depth of his love for uh, this woman. Her name was Mrs. Wallace Simpson. She was a divorced woman, and the Prime Minister of England warned the king that if he went forward with marrying Mrs. Wallace, then he would have to abdicate the throne. And so he wrestled with this, agonized for several days about what he was going to do. Would he remain the king, or would he leave the throne for this woman? And ultimately, he decided that he was going to abdicate the throne. On December 10th, 1936, with his three brothers beside him, the king signed with firm hand the instrument of abdication, only reigning 11 months. The night before December 9th, the king called Mrs. Simpson to inform her of his decision. She pleaded with him not to abdicate, not to give up the throne. And yet he said, the abdication documents are being drawn up. He said, you can do whatever you wish. You can go wherever you want. But wherever you go, I will follow you. The jacket of the video describes the story as the perhaps the most poignant, intriguing, and dramatic love story of modern times. But that's nothing to the story, the love story of King Jesus. But because we see in the gospel that King Jesus left his throne in heaven, he didn't need us. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't have to have that to exist. He is perfect in and of himself. And yet he chose to leave his throne room. And he chose to become a little baby. To live a sinless, perfect life. And to die the death that we deserved on the cross so that we might have a relationship with him. He abdicated his throne so that we might have a relationship with him. He's a God, a king, who gives. Pastor and author Philip Ryken says this, Most kingdoms do anything they can to protect their king. This is the unspoken premise of the game of chess, for example. When the king falls, the kingdom is lost. Therefore, the king must be protected at all costs. King Jesus did the exact opposite. With royal courage, he surrendered his body to be crucified. On the cross, he offered a king's ransom, his life for the life of his people. You see, an earthly king takes, but a heavenly king gives. 
They were seeking an earthly king who was going to take from them, but we should be seeking a heavenly king who gives everything to us. We should be longing for that heavenly king, the king who goes before us, the king who fights our battles, the king who offers us security even in the most difficult storms, in the lowest of valleys, he's promised that he'll be there for us. And as believers, we should long for that king, the king who came to earth, the king who is with us through his Holy Spirit, and the king who has promised that one day he's going to come back again. We can put our hope, we can put our faith in that kind of king. Because while earthly kings take, heavenly kings give. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you that for your grace. We thank you that you're not like an earthly king. That you're a God, a king who gives. Even if that, would, even if that costs your life. And we know that it did cost your life, Lord. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the cross, for rescuing us, for bringing us in right relationship with you. Lord, I pray that we would reject these impulses that are shown in this passage, that we would rest in who we are with you, that we wouldn't seek to be like those around us, like the other people who don't know you, that we would rest in your grace and your love for us, and also that we would find our security in you. That we would know beyond the shadow of doubt if we've put our faith and trust in you that there's nothing that can separate us from your love. That there's no battle that's too great for you. There's no opponent that's too strong. That we can trust in you. We can rely on you and you're there for us because you are a king who gives. Lord, we love you. We look forward to your return. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.